0: Chapter 2 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by caveat. Edward Third by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 2. Edward and the Baron's Wars, 1258-1267 the personal government of henry the third had now lasted more than five and twenty years year after year his weak and nerveless rule had become worse he gave the nation neither strong government nor popular control a feeble attempt at despotism had brought about a chronic state of anarchy extravagance nepotism incompetence had reigned supreme many allowed had been the protests that the wiser among the churchmen and the nobler among the baronage had raised against the weak king's misdoings But the tyranny of Henry was not that of severe and grinding kind which invites immediate and strenuous resistance, even at the expense of revolution, and the opposition was wanting in unity of policy and in leaders of capacity. Thus it was that, despite the protests of the gallant Richard Marshall, the sparing lamentations of the sainted Edmund of Abingdon, more manly denunciations of Bishop Cross-Test, and the spirited action of Earl Richard of Cornwall, Henry was still able to go on his evil ways. The new complications now presented themselves which had last brought about a final crisis. The return of Simon de Montfort from Gascony, thoroughly and forever at feud with his royal brother-in-law, gave the opposition a leader of matchless ability, resourcefulness, energy and daring. The vain attempt of Henry to procure for his second son, Edmund, the crown of Sicily, imposed a new and crushing burden upon the scanty resources of the kingdom. The popes, who used Edmund as a tool to drive out the heirs of their hated enemy, Frederick of Hohenstaufen, from the Sicilian throne, pledged Henry's credit to the uttermost and sent legates to England to demand the fulfilment of his promises. This led to the famous Parliament of Barons in 1258. At London in the spring, Henry was forced to accept a commission of reform. At Oxford in the summer, a new constitution was drawn up and forced upon the reluctant monarch. By the provisions of Oxford, the whole power of the crown was put into the hands of a committee of 15 barons. The king's household was set in order. His alien kinsmen and favourites were driven beyond sea, and the custody of royal castles entrusted to Englishmen alone. A sweeping scheme of further reformation was drawn up for the future. A few months' rigorous action reduced the would-be despot to a position of utter powerlessness. Edward was now in his twentieth year. It is probable that he was already dimly conscious of his father's deficiencies, but his filial affection and his pride of power alike prompted him to vigorously oppose the audacious designs of the barons, but he soon found himself swept away by the torrent. In vain he set himself against the expulsion of his familiar friends and companions, his uncles, the Lucevians. The barons forced him to take part in the siege of Winchester Castle, for which his Pontivine uncles made their last unavailing resistance. After their expulsion, he gave his reluctant oath to observe the provisions of Oxford. It must have been a bitter humiliation to him to be compelled to accept the appointment of four baronial councillors, specially commissioned to reform his turbulent and disorderly household. But with all this loyalty he could not sacrifice enough to satisfy the exacting affection of his foolish father. A hot quarrel broke out between the king and his son, though it was soon ended by an affectionate reconciliation in the chapter-house of Winchester. Yet each outburst of foolish petulance on Henry's part could not be but a fresh inducement to Edward to take up a line of his own. In his passive action in 1258, he had abundant opportunity to win fresh experience. Removal of his pontivin and Provençal kinsfolk threw him back more on English and more capable advisers. Next year, he began to play an independent part. The provisions at Oxford had not satisfied everybody. The revolution had been carried out by a ring of great earls and barons who thought, like the Whigs of the 18th century, that the transference of power to themselves had made the constitution so perfect. That further improvements were not to be hoped for. This was not the view of the Earl of Leicester, but as a new man and a foreigner, his influence was far inferior to that of Richard of Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, whose vast possessions and vigorous personal character made him the natural head of the English aristocracy. But new classes of the community now entered for the first time into the area of practical politics. The country gentlemen of knightly rank and the natural leaders of the unrepresented masses of the nation. Had already begun to get political experience from the new fashion of summoning knights of the shire to treat with the king in general parliaments. They now began to murmur loudly that the old grievances in which the nation had grown so long were in no wise removed by the change of leaders. These men, the community of the Bachelor of England, addressed to Edward a long petition for further reform and denounced the barons for breaking their word and working merely for their own good and the harm of the king. Edward answered that he was ready to die for the good of the commonwealth, but that though he had sworn to the provisions with the utmost unwillingness, he was resolved to keep his oath. He took up their cause with his usual impetuous ardour, and thus disassociated himself from the mere courtier party. One result of his energetic action was a further, though small, installment of reform in the provisions of Westminster. It is significant that while Henry simply swore to observe these provisions, Edward added to his acceptance an oath that he would advise and aid Earl Simon against all men. Perhaps the most important immediate effect of this movement was that it brought Edward into temporary relations with his uncle Monfort. It is hard to say that Edward's object was simply to divide his father's enemies and so break down the slavery to which the crown had been subjected, though no doubt this result did follow from his action. But for a time there was a complete breach between Edward and Henry, a complete harmony of action between the king's son and Earl Simon. Queen Eleanor, who could not forgive her son's desertion of her of kingsfolk, stirred up Henry against Edward. Gloucester, now Simon's declared enemy, did his best to widen the breach, and something like civil war seemed likely to break out between the followers of Gloucester and those of Edward. For five weeks and more, the Londoners sought to keep the peace by closing their gates and guarding them with an armed force. The absence of Henry in France, whither he had gone to negotiate a peace with his brother-in-law, St Louis, "'still further complicated matters. "'There, Henry signed a treaty "'by which he formally renounced all claims on Normandy and Poitou, "'thus giving up those pretensions within a few years before "'he had so solemnly handed over to his son. "'Simon hotly opposed the peace. "'It is not likely that Edward was very favourable to it, "'but both Edward and Simon became parties to the treaty "'and solemnly renounced their share in the abandoned claims. "'In the spring of 1260, things got worse.' Henry and Eleanor were informed as they were travelling back to England that Edward had formed a conspiracy with the barons to depose his father, and that the king on his arrival home would be forthwith hurried into captivity. The story was an outrageous fiction, but it thoroughly frightened Henry who lingered on the French shore of the Channel, fearing to cross the straits. At last, the timely intervention of Richard of Cornwall, now king of the Romans, convinced Henry that his suspicions were exaggerated. Henry was much offended by On his arrival in London he sternly refused to see his son, who was lodging with Simon outside the city walls. But the weak head and the good heart of the king could not long endure such unnatural estrangement. Do not let my son appear before me, he exclaimed, "For if I see him I shall not be able to refrain from kissing him. After a fortnight, father and son were reconciled. Edward gradually dropped his connections with Simon, though he kept up his feud with Gloucester until the death of Earl Richard in 1262. Disgusted at the troubles that had resulted from his first active intervention in politics, Edward withdrew from a time from public affairs and again sought distraction in his favourite amusement of the tilt-yard. He now went to France for a great tournament at which he came off badly. Again in 1262 he went abroad for the same purpose. He proved victor in several mock encounters, but in one he received a serious wound. Henry III had long wearied of his inglorious degradation at the hands of the Fifteen. And had for some time been engaged in secret intrigues against the constitution which he had sworn to observe. His last scruples were removed when two successive popes absolved both him and his son Edward from their oaths. On the second of May, twelve sixty two, Henry solemnly proclaimed to the sheriffs the tidings of his absolution from his obligations. But later in the year, on learning that the young Earl Gilbert, who had succeeded his father in the Gloucester estates and titles, thrown himself warmly on the side of Leicester, Henry again confirmed the provisions. A few months later, he was again at work undermining the new constitution. By Whitsuntide, 1263, open civil war had broken out. Edward spent the early part of 1263 in Paris, but the tidings came that Llywelyn of Wales had again invaded his Welsh estates, and after hurriedly collecting a body of foreign mercenaries, he hastened back to England and was again engaged until Whitsuntide a fruitless campaign against the Welsh. Meanwhile, the civil war had broken out, hastened by the refusal of the young Earl of Gloucester to take the oath of allegiance to Edward, which Henry, with singular want of tact, now insisted upon imposing upon the magnates. Edward threw himself into Windsor Castle, while Simon raised an army and encamped at Isleworth, a village on the Middlesex Bank of the Thames, just below Richmond, hoping thus to separate Edward at Windsor from Henry and Eleanor who had taken refuge in the Tower of London from the fury of the Londoners, who were nearly all staunch partisans of Earl Simon. One day, Eleanor, apparently with the object of joining Edward at Windsor, took boat and attempted to pass underneath London Bridge on her upward journey, but a great mob of the London rabble thronged the bridge, reviled her as a traitorous and an adulterous foreigner, and pelted her barge with stones, mud, rotten eggs and all manner of filth. She was soon forced back to the Tower, the incident is mainly memorable for its effect on Edward, who bitterly resented the found dignities heaped upon Eleanor, and became a sworn foe to London and its liberties for the rest of his life. Edward now applied himself with extraordinary dexterity to win over Leicester's followers, and succeeded in creating a strong party for himself, of which the backbone was the fierce Lord's Marcher of Wales, who might well have looked upon Edward as their natural leader, who had already fought by his side against Llewellyn. In revenge, Simon forced a close alliance with the Prince of Wales, and promised him his daughter as a wife. Thus, Llewellyn fought for the baronial cause, just as his grandfather, of Llewellyn ap Iroeth, had joined the nobles raid against John in the first struggle for the charter. Meanwhile, fresh truces were made, only to be broken, and fresh parliaments assembled, only to be dissolved amidst riot and confusion. Edward's tactics had so far succeeded that neither side was strong enough to get the better of the other. At last, in December, all parties agreed to submit their disputes to the arbitration of St. Louis. Edward sailed with his father for France, suffering severely during his passage from the storms of December. Early in 1264, the French king, as might have been expected, annulled the provisions and declared all points in favour of Henry III. Leicester, as might equally have been anticipated, refused to be bound by the arbitration to which he had sworn. On his taking up arms, Edward hurried back to England to defend his father's cause. He was already the practical leader of the Royalists, and the outbreak of civil war now forced him more fully to the front. He alone could take the lead in the King's Council, for he alone could form a Royalist party. There had been no party for Henry as long as he ruled through foreigners and favourites, any more than there was any party for Charles I in the days of ship money and the Bishop Wars, and the first session of the Long Parliament. Edward did effectually for his father what Hyde and Falkland did less successfully for Charles I. He showed the nation that Earl Simon was not the only reformer, and that the mass of the barons were not reformers at all. He upheld a constitutional royalism which allowed for national progress but discouraged revolution. But the bad traditions of long years of misgovernment still played to his following, and the hot revengeful fire of youth still coloured the political conduct of Edward with personal motives. Despite his gallant fight, he did not this time succeed, and it was well for England that the early failure of Edward preceded his later triumph. Campaign of 1264 was thus began by Earl Simon, who, half despairing at the threatened break-up of his party through Edward's intrigues, was resolved to conquer or perish. Though all men quit me, he exclaimed, I will remain with my four sons and fight for the good of the cause, which I have sworn to defend for the honour of the Holy Church and the welfare of the realm. While Simon himself marshaled the levies of the south, his eldest son Henry operated in the west in conjunction with the of Wales and his second son, Simon, raised a force in the Midlands at Kenilworth. Edward hurried to the west to join his friends in the Lord's Marcher in the fight against Henry Mumford and Tlewellyn. He strove to throw himself into Gloucester Castle, the town which commanded the passage over the Severn, being already in the hands of the barons. But though he gained his point, his numbers were too small to enable him to maintain his position, and he was forced to beg for a truce from his cousin, Henry Mumford, chivalrously or rashly, granted an armistice, but on the withdrawal of Henry to Kenilworth, Edward treacherously broke the truce and regained possession of the town. Master of the chief crossing over the lower seven, he could now turn his attention to the more general campaign. He soon joined his father at Oxford where he drove out all the masters and scholars who, headed by their chancellor, Thomas of Canteloupe, were enthusiastic partisans of the popular cause. Thence father and son marched against Northampton, where the younger Simon now was. Edward easily captured the town and took his cousin prisoner, having great trouble to save his life in the wild confusion of the storm. He now devastated the earldom of Leicester with fire and sword, but the royal forces were soon called off to the south, where Rochester, the key of Kent, was in danger of falling into the hands of Earl Simon. The king easily relieved Rochester, and wandered aimlessly through Kent and Sussex, seeking, though with little success, to win over the hostile Sankports, and striving to open communications with queen eleanor who was collecting an army of foreign mercenaries in the flemish harbors but his soldiers suffered severely from lack of food and forage as his troops plodded wearily through deep lanes and dense copses of the weald they were much harassed by some light armed welsh harcers who lurked in every hedge and thicket and inflicted severe losses upon them at last the weary host rested at lewes Edward took up his quarters in the castle in the north of the town while his father, with whom was his uncle Richard, King of the Romans, occupied the priory on the southern side of Lewes. Earl Simon had retired from Rochester to the capital, whence he marched south with an army reinforced by a host of Londoners, all fresh and eager for battle, though but little accustomed to warfare on thirteenth of May, he slept at Fletching, a village nine miles to the north of Lewes. Thence, early on the morning of the 14th of May, Montfort marched across the South Downs, hoping to surprise the town. Loose is situated on the right bank of the Ouse, which here makes a bend that almost encircles the town. To the western north, the South Downs sink gradually into the form of a natural amphitheatre, till they form the gap in which the town is built. The army of the barons swept swiftly across the bare, rolling chalk downs, hoping to attack the castle and its priory simultaneously. But their movements were discovered, and the Royalists poured out of the town, ready to fight the battle out upon the open plain. Simon fixed his standard upon the hill, hoping that his conspicuous position would tempt the Royalist attack. But while he gathered the mass of his army on the right wing, which operated from the west against the defenders of the Priory, he massed around the standard the untrained, though enthusiastic Londoners. It all turned out as Simon had expected. Edward, the real general of the Royalists, had once fell into the trap and charged with the flower of the host, and the dense masses grouped around the earl's Standard. With him was his gallant cousin, Henry of Alamein. The Londoners were smitten with panic and fled in confusion, while Edward, delighted to revenge on the citizens of the insults they had heaped upon his mother, pursued them vigorously for four miles, giving no quarter and inflicting terrible losses upon them. At last, tired out with slaughter, his weary troops marched back into Luz, and they found that in their absence, Earl Simon had forced the royal positions captured the priory in which the king had taken up his quarters, and driven the king of the Romans to take refuge in a mill, where he was soon forced to surrender. Edward's troops now dispersed in panic. Next day, the Mies of Lewes was drawn up, by which the provisions of Oxford were renewed, and Henry again forced to delegate his power to a baronial committee. One of the articles provided that Edward and Henry of Allemagne were to be given up as hostages for their good behaviour of the lord's marcher who were still in arms in the West. On the 16th of May, Edward surrendered. He and his cousin were put under the care of Henry Mumford, who shut them up at Dover, and treated them as captives rather than hostages, and less honourably than was becoming. Edward was afterwards removed to Kenilworth, whereas aunt, the Countess of Leicester, seems to have dealt with him more considerately than her son. A new constitution was soon drawn up, which put all power in the hands of three grand electors, and their nominees a council of nine but the marches still held out. Queen Eleanor and her mercenaries still threatened invasion, and the Pope fulminated anathemas against Simon and his adherents. Accordingly, Simon found it necessary to repose further trust in the people. Hence he summoned his famous Parliament of January 1265, in which for the first time, Knights of the Shire and representatives of the Burgesses sat side by side and deliberated in common with the bishops and barons who favoured the popular party. No one now thinks that Simon's Parliamentary Convention was the first House of Commons, but it marks an important era in the development of our parliamentary institutions. Besides being the completest Parliament that has hitherto been summoned, it is the first popular Parliament, consciously gathered together to deal with the political crisis. It is not too much, therefore, to regard it as the first occasion in which the rulers of England deliberately took the people into partnership with them. It taught a lesson that was never effaced from the mind of the impatient prisoner at Kenilworth. In this parliament, it was arranged that Edward was to surrender his earldom of Chester to Leicester and to be speedily released from captivity. The dark ambitions of Leicester and the brutal violence of his sons had again split up the popular party. No one could ever work long with Earl Simon. Gilbert had lost his youthful enthusiasm for his brilliant mentor, had now worn off. After a violent quarrel, he retired in anger to his estates and joined the marches. Leicester accordingly marched to the west, taking Edward with him by way of caution. About Whitsuntide, Edward was at Hereford, under the custody of Thomas of Clare, the brother of the Earl of Gloucester, by whose mediation a secret understanding was arrived at for his escape. One day, Edward went outside the city, attended by Thomas and a few knights, for the sake of taking exercise. The conversation turned on horsemanship, and Edward as if to try their paces, rode in turn all the horses of the party, At last he found out which steed was the swiftest and strongest, and mounting hastily upon it, rode off as hard as he could. His guardians soon saw they were duked, and galloped after him in pursuit, but Edward had got too good a start, and was too well mounted to run much risk of capture. Before long he joined a band of armed marchers, who were waiting for him in the wood, and conducted him safely to the Mortimer's stronghold of Wigmore. He now made terms with the Earl of Gloucester, at Ludlow, Edward strongly swore that, if he obtained the victory, he would cause to be observed all the good old laws of the land, would do away with all evil customs, expel all aliens from the king's castles, court, and council, and take care that England should be ruled by Englishmen. It was an eventful moment. This Treaty of Ludlow, marking the formal acceptance by Edward of the popular programme, completed the transformation of parties which, through Edward's influence, had been slowly working ever since 1259. Henceforth, it was not Leicester, but Edward who best represents the cause of orderly national progress. Leicester, with all his greatness, had made himself impossible, and his designs were more and more suspected. Henry becomes henceforth a mere puppet in his son's hands, and Edward, in taking his promises, had no mere intention of outbidding the rival faction or dishing the Whigs. His whole future shows that he has convinced himself that the policy he swore to uphold at Ludlow was the right one. Henceforth, the English monarchy becomes both national and progressive. Leicester soon saw that the game was up, but manfully resolved to die fighting for the good old cause. A vast army gathered together under the standards of Edward and Gloucester. By the capture of Gloucester town, they hemmed up Leicester on the right bank of the Severn and cut him off from his own son, Simon, who was collecting another army in the Midlands, while Leicester was marching wearily up and down the Severn, hoping to find a passage. Edward on the 1st of August surprised the younger Simon at Kenilworth and almost annihilated his army, though he failed to capture the castle into which Simon had escaped. Meanwhile, Leicester had succeeded in crossing the Severn and had marched as far as Esham on the road to Kenilworth, hoping to join forces with his son. There he learned of the younger Simon's misfortunes. Conscious that his last hour had come, the great Earl prepared with his handful of worn-out and dispirited troops to sell his life dearly to the victorious marchers. The situation of Evesham with respect to the Avon is not altogether similar to that of Lewes with respect to the Ouse. The river makes a great curve to the south, and Evesham is situated on the right bank towards the southern sweep of the Reach. On the 4th of August, the Battle of Evesham was fought. Edward had taken the lesson of Lewes to heart, and had marshalled his superior forces with consummate prudence. He himself occupied in force the sort of isthmus formed by the windings of the Avon, a little to the north of Evesham. This cut off Leicester's only retreat by land, while Gloucester, who was posted with the rest of the army on the left bank of the river beyond the town, cut off all possibility of escape over Evesham Bridge. Leicester himself could not but admire his enemy's tactics. By the army of St James, he swore. They come on cunningly, but they have not taught themselves that order of battle, but have learnt it from me. The battle was short, but sharp. Edward and Gloucester advanced simultaneously to the attack amidst a terrible blare of trumpets. Slowly but surely, the little army of Leicester was surrounded and overwhelmed. Earl Simon died fighting bravely. At his side perished his first-born son, Henry, the old playmate and companion-at-arms of the victor. Guy the third son was captured, terribly wounded. The army of the good cause was annihilated, and Edward, by one day of victory, under the efforts of seven years of struggle. Henry III was now restored to liberty, though it was in truth little more than a change of masters. Henceforth he was to act as the puppet of his son instead of his brother-in-law. But years of misfortunes had still further relaxed the will of the old king, and Edward was so careful to pay him due deference, so affectionate and devoted to him, that all former trace of jealousy was removed, and perfect harmony remained between father and son until the end of Henry's life. One more difficulty still stood in the way of a complete settlement the wild thirst of the victors for vengeance forced the vanquished to fight till the bitter end. A general sentence of forfeiture drove the remnants of the baronial party to renew their resistance in the autumn. The dead Earl's stronghold of Kenilworth was the chief centre of the renewed struggle, but the younger Simon held out amidst the marshy fastness of the Isle of Axholm. By building long wooden bridges over the sluggish streams that cut off Axholm from the mainland, Edward procured, in November, his cousin's surrender. In the spring, Edward won a great fight against the men of Winshawsey, which resulted in the surrender of the ports. He then turned his arms against a famous freebooter, an outlawed knight named Adam Goudon, who headed a band of desperadoes that lurked in the Hampshire forests on the pretext of holding to the last the good cause. Edward came upon Goudon's camp in the neighbourhood of Alton. Thoroughly delighted with the adventure, he rushed impetuously forward, heedless to the fact that his followers had got separated from him by a deep ditch. He engaged in personal conflict with his doughty antagonist, and having wounded him, captured him after a sharp tussle, and delighted with his bravery and daring, treated him with all honour, tending his wounds and regarding him as a guest rather than his captured enemy. But the non-nightly followers of Adam were hanged on the nearest tree by Edward's orders. Meanwhile, Kenilworth still held out. His long resistance at last taught Edward that clemency was not only right but politic. After failing to storm the castle. Edward offered the disinherited to restore them to their lands on condition of the paying a fine amounting to five years' rental. The general acceptance of the terms of this dictum de Kenilworth practically ended the English rising, but a few desperados, specially exempted from the pardon, still strove to hold the Isle of Ely, and their followers had previously held Axholm. They maintained their position so bravely that Edward was forced to go in person for the siege by building causeway of Wattle over the marshy Fenlands. He secured an access to the stronghold of the disinherited. Treachery did something more. But clemency finally ended the struggle. Edward at last offered the army the terms of Kenilworth, whereupon they surrendered. This ended the war in England. But Clewelyn of Wales still stood out in the west, and as long as he was in arms the cause of the Montforts could not be said to be dead. But the papal legate, Ottobon, who had already done good work for peace, now offered his powerful interventions which both Edward and Llewellyn hastened to accept. By the Treaty of Shrewsbury, terms of exceptional liberality were offered to and accepted by Llewellyn. In this treaty, Henry recognised Llewellyn as Prince of all Wales, and allowed him to receive the homage of all the Welsh barons, save the degenerate representatives of the old line of princes in the south, who were still allowed the greater dignity of immediate vassals of the crown. Edward's old territory of the Four Camtrads was fully surrendered to him, but this course left Edward nothing of his Welsh estates save the lands around Carmarthen. It was a great day of triumph for the Welsh national cause, but also a great day of rejoicing to Edward, who thus by noble surrender concluded his great work of peace and reconciliation. For the rest of the old king's reign, the land remained in profound peace, thanks to the wise policy of Edward in identifying the monarchy with the more solid and permanent parts of the policy of the dead Earl of Leicester. With nine years of struggle. Edward's character had become matured and his experience ripened. He had already shown that he ranked among the first knights, generals and statesmen of Christendom. Now that the swords of his followers were turned to plowshares and their lances to reaping hooks, Edward again went back to the old pastime of the tournament. He soon resolved to consecrate to higher purpose the sword, which he so often wielded against his kinfolk and his countrymen, or in the savage sports of the Tiltyard. In June 1268, Edward took the crusaders' vow to rescue the sepulchre of Christ from the insults of Islam. End of chapter two